episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. I'm here today with Kevin DePew, Deputy Chief Economist and National Industry Eminence Program Leader at RSM for a quarterly economic update. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Katie. Trade is a topic that I've been talking about with you and your colleague Joe Brusuelis for a long time now on these quarterly updates. And we finally have some movement in a positive direction between the phase one trade deal with China and the USMCA agreement. These both seem like good news. So let's start with the phase one trade deal. What can you tell us about what you expect the impact on the economy to be in in 2020 from this deal? The first thing it does is it stabilizes the U.S. and China trade relationship, which is very important. It's the one of the single largest trading relationships in the world in terms of its impact and ripple effect throughout the broader global economy. So uh, from the standpoint that it's no longer accelerating in a negative direction, then at least this puts a floor under the relationship and goes to, uh, at least some way toward removing what we refer to as the uncertainty tax overhanging the economy. And so this uncertainty tax has contributed to a lack of capital expenditures on the parts of business. It's contributed, obviously, to the manufacturing slowdown. Uh, Estimates are that uh, from the New York Fed and Columbia and Princeton, a recent study shows that it has created about an $831 per household impact in terms of the magnitude of the tariffs. In fact, one of the things that, uh, that we've been very worried about is Sometimes you will hear someone, a pundit on TV, talk about, well, China's paying for the tariffs. Well, New York Fed's done a study. We did a study last year. Uh, There is no evidence that any producers in China or exporters in China are lowering their prices. So if they're not lowering their prices, then that money is being paid essentially an import tax here when it gets to Customs and Border Patrol. Hmm. So that overall uncertainty tax is, again, restricted capital investment. Uh, hurt manufacturers. Uh, the acceleration in late summer and early as we got into September uh, also created some headwinds for consumer products companies. Mm-hmm. You saw some uh, element of households pulling forward purchases later in the summer when they anticipated the tariffs uh, pro- uh, possibly hitting uh, consumer products. And those are the tariffs that would go directly to uh, the product shelves. So as a consumer products company like a Walmart or a Target, Kohl's, they're not going to obviously have all of their inventory on hand. And so those were the tariffs that if the December 15th had hit, uh, particularly that would have hurt those prices for consumers very much. Uh, mm-hmm. And it would have been almost overnight. Are there any key takeaways from this deal specifically for mid-sized companies? One of the the challenges that mid-sized companies face is they have less supply chain flexibility than some of the larger companies. In some cases, well, in most cases, middle market businesses don't typically have counsel on staff to deal with the impact of tariffs. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would come to us with questions about, who pays the tariffs? You know, that was that level of uncertainty about how to handle the situation. And so from that standpoint, middle market businesses were probably uh, impacted more significantly than some of the Fortune 500 companies that had much more uh, supply chain flexibility, economists on staff, general counsel on staff, and trade uh, counsel on staff that they could go to with questions like that. Mm-hmm. So all of those things combined to create some significant headwinds for the manufacturing clients that we have. 
and especially agricultural uh, clients, especially the small farms that were disproportionately affected by the restriction on soybean purchases and and China's uh, unwillingness to continue with those agricultural purchases. Mm-hmm. And the other big trade news was around the USMCA agreement that the U.S. signed with Canada and Mexico. And there were some new provisions in this deal compared with what the agreement looked like under NAFTA, including new rules for Mexican labor and tightened rules for the auto industry. Will this agreement benefit the manufacturing and and automotive sectors, both of which have been experiencing slower growth recently? The key takeaway from USMCA is it's the first trade agreement that actually restricts trade. So, for example, in Mexico, where you have increased labor costs that make their uh, manufacturers less competitive with U.S. manufacturers, that will be a headwind. Overall, it will likely reduce some of the trade between the three countries. So when you have Canada, uh, the United States, and Mexico, the supply chains that have developed over the past 40 to 50 years – Uh, When you start to have those seeing increased restrictions, then from that standpoint, maybe a small benefit for U.S. manufacturers and automotive. But overall, in the longer term, uh, the 16-year agreement is actually something that rolls back some of the free trade. Hmm. Now, I understand that from the other side of the spectrum, there's the view that U.S. lost manufacturing jobs uh, to places like Mexico. Uh, so, you know, some of the labor provisions uh, there, again, I've seen the, the estimates from the administration that uh, you, you see everything from it's going to contribute 0.5 uh, percentage points to GDP growth, uh, that's going to create all of these jobs. Uh, when you look at the actual data, however, that effect is likely to be minimal. Hmm. Uh, there will be some job increases here in the United States, but far, far below what some of the, the wild estimates that, that I've seen in the media. Uh, it's not going to contribute 250,000 new jobs, uh, for example. So from that standpoint, it's, you know, the biggest thing that I could say in terms of economic impact would be that it goes again to eliminate some of the uncertainty tax overhanging the general economy. And it provides at least some clarity for businesses so that they can move forward. Mm -hmm. And is this evidence that we're moving in a direction of more managed trade for the long term, or is this more of a one-off? Well, what we've seen, and I'll put on a historian's hat for a moment here. So going back to 1815, roughly, we've had a long period of increasing globalization and free trade. Mm-hmm. That's been interrupted a number of times. Uh, around World War I, it was interrupted again uh, severely in the Great Depression, uh, interrupted again during the oil crisis in the 70s. And so this is what I would refer to as another interruption. You are not going to go back and be able to uh, roll back increasing movement of goods, labor, and capital uh, across borders uh, on a longer-term basis. Those forces of globalization, the benefits that uh, that are achieved in terms of quality of life, especially for an advanced economy like the United States, they're measurable. They're identifiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the downside of that free trade is that it creates uh, some disproportionate outcomes, meaning that you have some winners and some losers over the long term There are many, many winners and very few losers. But over the short term, especially when you come out of an economic crisis like we had 10 years ago and that reverberated around the world, you continue to see some of the inequality that's increased here in the United States and in other developed countries. There are 31 counties that account for about a third of all GDP in the U.S. That's a heavy concentration here in a very large economy. So uh, 
in, in terms of, of raising our standard of living, free trade is a good thing. Uh, in the short term, you get periods like this where it seems to go the other way, and that usually follows some kind of severe economic shock. The interruptions that you mentioned are tied to wars or the depression. Is this a direct result of, of the Great Recession, would you say, or is Absolutely. this an anomaly? Okay. And, yeah, and you can be – and to be very clear, the, the forces of protectionism that are increasing in the United States, the turn toward – uh, a president who is more populist and his and his statements and in his rhetoric and in his actions, those are those are not isolated. Uh, when you look around the world at parts of Asia, you have increasing populism. In Germany, you have increasing populism. You have increasing protectionism uh, along all of those countries that have experienced some type of economic shock that really originated in the United States. The second leg of this three-legged stool would be the sovereign debt crisis in Europe and then uh, China's uh, slowdown and the debt overhang that uh, they are still working through. Mm. So – all of these are are very closely associated with you know how people behave in the wake of a severe economic crisis that increases inequality and sorts out very wide uh, uh, gaps between the real winners in the economy and the real losers. Mm. And I want to ask you about RSM's uh, Middle Market Business Index, which was published today. It reflected lower middle market business sentiment than the previous quarter, which seems to align with slowing growth. What are some of the factors behind that decline in, in sentiment and confidence among middle market business leaders? Middle market business sentiment remains quite strong. Now, we did decline to 127.2 from 131 uh, in Q3. And so that's really in line with some of the economic deceleration that we've seen this year. Mm-hmm. And the data that, we, uh, that we've seen throughout the, the fourth quarter uh, has been all in line with what you anticipate when the economy is slowing. Now, we're not slowing toward a recession. Our forecast is that we're going to kind of skirt through 2020 without a recession, barring some kind of unforeseen event like mm-hmm. uh, an economic shock, whether it's commodities-related or or a further acceleration or a re-acceleration, rather, of the trade war with China. So mm-hmm. barring those types of events, then we'll likely skirt through 2020 uh, with slower growth again. Our forecast is for 1.5% growth full year for 2020. Mm-hmm. So that's not recessionary, but it does indicate a slowing of the economy, and that's reflected in the sentiment. But overall, if you if in our index, with the dividing line between optimism and pessimism being 100, uh, 127.2 is still very optimistic. Hmm. So uh, the middle market has a forward look that is largely uh, uh, they're anticipating continued growth in net earnings, continued growth uh, in, in gross revenues. And, and so what we're seeing is just a slight deceleration at this point, not something to be alarmed about. Mm-hmm. So don't read too much into that dip. That's right. That's right. It also, that survey period occurred before USMCA uh, was passed. It occurred before the phase one uh, U.S.-China trade deal, which we should get details of uh, in early January. So that was sentiment that doesn't even reflect some of the lifting of that uncertainty tax that's occurred just in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And one factor that was cited in, in the report was the fading impact of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Will we continue to see that impacting economic sentiment going forward? 
Well, I don't know if you'll see it so much going forward unless, you know, until we get to some clarity around the 2020 election, there have been some proposals put on the table about the potential rolling back of some of the corporate tax cuts. Uh, That would obviously not be viewed very positively by the business community and certainly not by the middle market, which was a beneficiary of that that stimulus package. Mm -hmm. Uh, The longer term issues about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, however, is that we now have a trillion plus uh, deficit in the United States. You've seen some of the benefits of that front-loaded tax package start to recede. And so if, if, if it becomes uh, clearer that, uh, that those corporate tax cuts are going to be possibly rolled back, that's going to impact sentiment, obviously. The index showed that 28% of respondents expect the economy to worsen in the next six months, which is quite a bit higher than in the third quarter. You also mentioned that was before some of these positive developments around trade. Um, but curious, what's behind those expectations for slowing growth? Well, I think when, you know, similar to what you saw in 2016 in the first half when uh, there was so much uncertainty about the election, you had almost a binary outcome between, uh, depending on who won that election, uh, what the future for corporate tax rates were going to be, mm-hmm. what the future uh, for trade was going to be. And so all of those things kind of contributed to uh, deceleration in the economy throughout 2016. You have a similar uh, thing unfolding now where uh, while it, we don't even know who the the eventual opponent of President Trump is going to be, mm-hmm. unless there is some commanding lead that he develops over the next few months, you're, that uncertainty is going to continue to weigh. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the six-month forward look where you just have that uncertainty tax that's overhanging the economy. The election confusion on top of that makes it very difficult for businesses to plan in a forward-looking way for long-term uh, capital investments or things of that nature. And is that compounded by impeachment in any way? We recently got that news this week. Yeah, our view of impeachment is that uh, if, you know, had it accelerated in a way where it goes to the Senate and results in some uh, uh, some uncertainty about how the Senate would vote, mm-hmm. that you would have had a, a brief financial market uh, reaction, possibly. But in terms of economic impact, uh, very little. We we weren't anticipating anything significant to happen uh, uh, from the economy. And, and it's just a reflection of the polarization we have, which is also a reflection of that, uh, that gap in inequality that we're seeing in the United States, that divergence between economic activity concentrated in major metro areas, where if you get 60 miles outside of any major city, then you have a vastly different economy mm-hmm. and one that only recently has begun to participate in the expansion that is now the longest in U.S. history. So it's no surprise that if you are outside of uh, Chicago, New York, L.A., mm-hmm. all those places that are robust uh, hubs of economic activity, that views about the economy and about the direction of the economy in the country are, are, wi- are wildly different from those major cities. Mm-hmm. As businesses have paid higher prices as a result of the trade war, are you seeing any signs of rising inflation? And is that a concern for you at all going into 2020? Well, it is a concern uh, for us. Uh, and and I'll tell you why. There is, in our own survey, the Middle Market Business Index showed that there continue to be pricing pressures that are building on the producer side, even excluding labor. So if you take labor out of the question, those pricing prices are building. When you add in uh, the tight labor market, uh, 3.6% uh, unemployment, even with even in the manufacturing space, when I go out and I talk to manufacturers about what's happening in the economy, what their concerns are, it's tariffs and the trade war is second 
uh, even to those manufacturers that are affected, mm-hmm. to finding and retaining talent. Interesting. And it is interesting because you, you would expect that in the manufacturing space, you go out and you ask them a question about what are, what are your views about, uh, about the key risks that you're facing. The trade war is obviously a risk and they acknowledge it, but there's no control you have over that. You know, you're kind of at the mercy of what policymakers decide. And as a business owner, that's going to be reflected in your lack of CapEx mm-hmm. um, and your lack of, of, uh, of forward planning, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, when you ask them about that key risk, number one is how do I find talent? How do I, I meet the goals that I have in terms of hiring? And second to that is how, uh, you know, how much am I going to have to pay to get new employees in the door or how much am I going to have to pay to keep the existing talent? Mm-hmm. So in longer term, inflationary pressures, the inability to pass on those costs to consumers when the economy is decelerating is creating a bigger gap now between the pricing pressures, wage pressures, and the ability to pass through or recoup some of that in terms of your margins. And do you expect that to get significantly worse over the course of the coming year? Well, one of the things that's interesting is that from a producer pricing standpoint, it's been uh, the, the stronger dollar has actually been a tailwind. Because it means that the the things that you're importing, uh, raw materials, that uh, the strong dollar helps mitigate some of the pricing pressures that you would see. So our view is that the the dollar is has likely peaked in 2019 and may see uh, some declines throughout 2020. And from that standpoint, that that starts to make the pricing pressures a little more acute and and more easily identifiable in the data. Mm. So what the Fed is looking at with the consumer pricing uh, consumer prices, um, whether it's PCE or their favored measures, uh, producer prices, that data is likely in 2020 to start to show some upticks that have previously kind of been hidden by the stronger dollar. And what did the most recent MMBI show about middle market executives' plans for for CapEx or for productivity-enhancing investments? Well, again, with the uncertainty tax, that's the major headwind that we're seeing for capital expenditures. Second to that is uh, really some, some, I would characterize it as some concern about how do you plan for manufacturing 4.0? How do you plan for the digital transformations that we're seeing in the economy? Where should your investments go? And there's some uncertainty about how to go as a business. Mm-hmm. Now, which, which direction do you, how do you invest for that future? So, uh, you know, what we uh, anticipate is that as trade becomes less of a headwind, even if it's just stable now because of the phase one agreement or the potential phase one agreement, um, that lifting that uncertainty tax would potentially release some pent-up capital expenditure demand, especially as we get some clarity around the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. So this may not necessarily materialize in Q1 or Q2, but once it appears that we're at least going to have some clarity around who's who's going to continue, whether it's the Trump administration or whether uh, somebody new comes into office and what their plans are, then that will likely release some of the pent up capital expenditures demand. And that's kind of been one of the one of the restraints in terms of GDP growth. Mm-hmm. So we've had strong consumption. We just haven't had the private fixed investment on top of that to be able to get us above that 1.9, 1.8% level where we're, we're likely to come in for 2019. Is that going to hurt global competitiveness for U.S. manufacturers if their international competitors were making those investments, were investing in technology? Is that going to hurt manufacturing in the U.S. over the long term? Over the long term, absolutely, because we're at a point where in order to increase productivity, you need, you need increased business investment. 
So if businesses aren't investing because they're either uncertain about the direction of trade policy or they're uncertain about uh, all of these things around policy that are uh, that are kind of clouds right now, then that restrains the ability to invest, to increase productivity, to plan for a future. Uh, remember, those investments on in, when you're talking about capital expenditures, you're talking about investments that uh, are sometimes it's necessary to plan 12, 24 months ahead. And so from that standpoint, yeah, it, it does put us in a position where uh, we risk uh, becoming less competitive in the global economy when you have other economies, other countries that are actively investing uh, to meet the demands of, of all of this new technology that is available, artificial intelligence, machine learning, access of data. What do you do with the data? Um, how does that transform your business? All the investments that are being made in China, places like South Korea, uh, the United States is definitely at risk of falling behind some of those global competitors. And in those other countries that are a little bit more advanced in this regard, are they receiving government support in, in terms of these initiatives in a way that maybe U.S. firms are not? Absolutely. And, and in many cases, that's true. Uh, you know, in some respects, when you look at the relationship between the U.S. and China, uh, the tariffs are really just a sideshow. It's an issue, not a trend. In mm -hmm. other words, we'll get past that at some point, uh, whether it's because the impact economically in the United States starts to really show up the way it has over the last four months and impacts domestic manufacturing, uh, or whether you get a new change in administration or something and, and a reversal of some of the tariff trade policy. What's really at stake is the technological transformation and who is investing where. Mm -hmm. And so from the United States standpoint, you have uh, significant uh, Chinese government investments in all of those areas, mm -hmm. uh, significant investments in Japan, South Korea, all those parts of Asia, uh, significant investments in parts of Europe. And so the United States economy, if we're not able to match those investments, then that becomes problematic. The index showed... 18% of executives expect plan borrowing to decrease over the next six months, and that's compared with 12% back in the third quarter. What's behind that dip? We think that's related to some of the deceleration that we're seeing in the economy already. Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of it is related to risk aversion on the parts of businesses, and that may be a carryover from the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. So because we haven't yet had a downturn in the business cycle, uh, a recession, um, most business owners, when you talk to them what their fear about what their fears are, uh, they'll say, well, I don't want another recession. It's like the last one. That was almost existential for many businesses that are still around, and it was ex existential for some of the businesses during that period. And so the fear is that the next recession would look just like the last one, which was really more of an economic crisis than it was a recession. Uh, and so it'll take some time for us to go through a downturn in the business cycle for uh, business owners to recognize that, oh, okay, this is not uh, the next 2007, 2008, 2009, that this is more like a normal garden variety recession. Uh, we're fine. Uh, we took some steps to mitigate the risk, and now we're ready to move forward. And I think over time, we'll start to see that risk aversion recede. Mm -hmm. But the planned borrowing is a prime example of how that manifests and, and what their viewpoints are about appropriate risk-taking, accumulating more debt, all of those types of, of things that we're a little more risk-averse now than we were, say, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Is corporate debt a concern for you as we head into another slowdown eventually? Sure, it is from a cyclical standpoint. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's uh, I mean, not to be flip, but that's 
it is a, a debt and business cycle that we go through. Mm-hmm. And so that means that when you're near the end of that cycle, you start to see uh, cov light loans, uh, fewer protections. And so that's typical of what you see late in the business cycle. Uh, there is nothing on the debt side that is in any way, shape, or form uh, akin to what we saw going into the, the 2008 uh, subprime crisis. Um, you do have uh, some issues in automotive lending, which is a concern for ours, um, and especially in subprime lending. Uh, but again, those are just late cycle features. And so we would view that as, well, you know, sometimes you take on more risk than you should. And then at the end of the day, somebody has to pay for that risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really where we are. I wouldn't view it as a, a crisis risk. I view it as just a, an end of cycle phenomenon that we'll have to work through. Mm-hmm. Are there any other risks or vulnerabilities that you're keeping an eye on as we head into 2020? The major risk that we see is that there could be a reacceleration of the U.S.-China trade war. Hmm. So we saw in late uh, late summer, in August, when uh, you you saw the potential for this to escalate into uh, something that involves currencies. Uh, and competitive currency devaluations. And then that's when you get into a scenario that looks a lot like some of the interruptions in free trade that we saw around the Great Depression. There's a reason that we haven't, as uh, a country, engaged in uh, tariffs on an extended basis uh, to correct correct perceived trade differentials since the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. It's because they don't work. Um, so it doesn't, you know, again, the tariffs are really just a sideshow to uh, the other issues, uh, forced technology transfer, uh, intellectual property theft, uh, the unfair uh, subsidizing of state-owned enterprises competing with U.S. manufacturers or U.S. businesses that don't have access to those state uh, subsidies. Mm-hmm. So all of those are, are that's the bigger picture. Um, and, and so once, uh, once we get into 2020, if we don't make substantial progress toward correcting those larger issues, or if we take policy actions that, uh, that prove uh, uh, expensive for U.S. companies, um, more expensive than what they're anticipating, then that becomes a risk. So I would say that it's still uh, the risks are still concentrated around trade more than anything else. Uh, not around, you know, something like a, a further decline into recession. We've like the consumers in very good shape. So even though you've seen consumer spending uh, decelerate, that that's really in line with the overall economic deceleration and largely unrelated to some kind of uh, consumer-led uh, recessionary event. This quarter's middle market business index included a section around ESG, and it showed that more than 90% of middle market executives support social, community, or philanthropic causes and, and have in the past two years. Are there any changes in the types of causes they support or, or their motivations for some of these activities that you've seen? There's there's not so much a change that we see in the types of causes that they're supporting, mm-hmm. uh, but we do sense a change in the motivation for it. And so I would go back to uh, prior to our survey, uh, the business roundtable statement about the purpose of a corporation uh, moving beyond just shareholder enhancement or shareholder benefits to include other stakeholders. So uh, communities, employees, all of those types of things represent a really fundamental shift in the way U.S. businesses are viewing who their real stakeholders are. 
We don't know yet uh, whether that's uh, part of a long-term trend or if it's just endemic to what we're seeing uh, in society with the gap, the inequality gap that can't continue to persist and some of the issues that are occurring in communities that need uh, business support, whether it's the opioid crisis or other things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say it's a positive step, at least for where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's really not so much the causes, but it's the motivation for, for pursuing that kind of social responsible behavior that is really intriguing. And and frankly, it's nice to see some recognition for that. On each of these podcasts, I ask you for a reading recommendation, which I feel like this time is particularly timely, just given folks are taking off time for the holidays, might have some extra time to dig into a, a book or a paper. So I'm curious if you have any recommendations for us. I do. I have a, I have a short read, and it is uh, directly related to time. It's by an Italian physicist called um, Carlo Rovelli, and it's called The Order of Time. And he looks at time, you know, obviously as a physicist, he starts from the problem of time uh, from a physics problem, right? And uh, talks about our perception of time and how it's different. So for me, our conversation has seemed like it's gone in like 30 seconds. For you, it may seem like 45 minutes. So there's a, there's a perceptual difference that you and I have about time, mm-hmm. even though we would say that, that this time is going to be measurable in a practical way. So, you know, time has to be practical in one sense. So I need to know how long I'm going to have to wait at the airport for my delayed flight. I need to know when the train is going to arrive uh, in the next city that I'm going to. But from a physics standpoint, time becomes more problematic. And he does a, a, just a wonderful job. It's beautifully written and beautifully translated. Uh, and talks about how time is is such an important concept that we really don't understand. And I think it's very informative, especially in a day where uh, things are happening so quickly. Technology seems to be transforming things so rapidly uh, with the advent of the potential for quantum computing to really change some of the things that we can do uh, from a technology standpoint. This book goes directly to helping elucidate some of those issues and getting us to think about them in a way that maybe we haven't before. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.